there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Good morning. Two things that I want to uh, correct or amplify a little bit. My husband told me last night that that cat story didn't make a connection at all in his mind. He said he thought he knew what I was talking about, but he thought there'd probably be a lot of people here that didn't know what I was talking about. I said that that cat was an angel of the Lord, you know, and uh, all I meant was that I think God had reasons for having me wakened at that hour, and Carolyn says, we understood it. You tell him we understood it. We were thanking the Lord for that cat walking up the sidewalk, she says. I misquoted you. Oh, dear. Oh, you were the one that was obtuse, but you didn't really think there'd be anybody else obtuse in this. The Lord does have all sorts of ways of getting our attention, doesn't he? And, uh, the fact that that cat had breathed heavily into my face and that I couldn't figure out where he belonged and how he got in there, I stayed awake for a long time, which meant that I got a lot of wonderful reading done in Viktor Frankl's book. The other thing I want to say is that uh, you can change number one for your small group discussion, the reference instead of Lamentations 325, you can use that one too, it's fine, but. I thought Psalm 27, 13, and 14, you might have a little less trouble figuring out why in the world I chose the scriptures that I did. You know, it, does, it is a little bit uh, disturbing at times to have to set things in concrete long in advance, and let's not have this set in concrete. So on your group, your small group, number one, put Psalm 27, 13, and 14 either uh, instead of or in addition to Lamentations 3.25. This morning, we're going to ponder the subject of relinquishment. To wait on the Lord means, for one thing, to give up a lot of our own notions about how things ought to turn out. And we just almost always have to start with getting rid of ourselves. Any spiritual exercise at all needs to begin with surrendering ourselves, relinquishment of all that we imagine God ought to do. That doesn't mean we have to get rid of it, get it completely out of our minds, but just a total handing over to God of what we think needs to happen and waiting on him because we are servants and servants are those who simply wait on, wait for orders, wait in readiness to do whatever the master asks us to do. 
And the need to wait requires that we get rid of ourselves. How many of you have read Hannah Whittall Smith's Christian Secret of a Happy Life? Wonderful. Those of you that haven't read it, I recommend it. It's a little book that was written more than 100 years ago and has never been out of print. There are very few books of which that can be said. She was a Philadelphia Quaker, and she had some wonderful down-to-earth common sense. And one of the things that she says about this business of the self, and you can put down number one, the self, that's what we're talking about right now. She says, the greatest burden we have to carry in life is self. The most difficult thing we have to manage is self. Our own daily living, our frames and feelings, and I keep coming across that word frames in books that were written about 100 years ago. We don't use it this way anymore, but I think what they mean is moods. You know that you've probably been singing for years. Uh, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Well, it took me a long time to figure out what they were talking about, and as I've come across it in old writings, I think that's what it is, Fra uh, moods, temperaments. So our own daily living, says Hannah, our frames and feelings, our especial weaknesses and temptations, and our peculiar temperaments, our inward affairs of every kind, these are the things that perplex and worry us more than anything else, and that bring us oftenest into bondage and darkness. In laying off your burdens, therefore, the first one you must get rid of is yourself. You must hand yourself and all your inward experiences, your temptations, your temperament, your frames and feelings, all over into the care and keeping of your God, and leave them there. I remember an old gospel song that said, take your burdens to the cross and leave them there. And how often we take our burdens to the cross and carry them away again. So the great thing is to leave your temptations, your experiences, your temperament, your frames, your feelings, all into the care and keeping of your God and leave them there. He made you, and therefore he understands you and knows how to manage you. And you must trust him to do it. Isn't it absurd of us to doubt that the one who made us does, in fact, know how to manage us. He knows exactly what is called for, given our peculiar temperaments. He knows what we need. He knows how to get it to us in his time. But we have so many of our own notions of what we need and what God ought to do and what this situation ought to, uh, how this situation ought to be changed. And this is what waiting on God is all about. So the first step in waiting on him is getting rid of ourselves, that terrible, really unbearable burden of the self, the most difficult thing we have to manage, she says. And last night, I think I mentioned, and I really do have a hard time remembering what I said last night and what I said on Wednesday in another seminar, uh, the prayer of commitment, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes. Did I mention that? Thank you. Betty Scott Stamm prayed that prayer. 
for years I've been giving the credit for writing that prayer to Betty Scott Stam, and I've only recently discovered that it was written by an older Chinese, an, an older missionary to China by the name of James Graham, and apparently P Betty Scott Stam, whom I knew as a little girl, learned the prayer from him, and she prayed that prayer, and this is the prayer that I copied into my Bible, a prayer of total surrender and relinquishment, all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. These are surrendered to God's disposal, not because he wants to crush all our dreams. I think people often get a very distorted view of what surrender means. Do I have to give up all my dreams? Well, you know, there's a difference in my mind between giving up in the sense of just expecting that they're gone forever and giving over. And the relinquishment is putting these dreams and plans and hopes, many of which God may want to fulfill, but I just put them consciously and deliberately into his hands and say, Lord, you know much better than I do whether I'm asking for bread or a stone, an egg or a scorpion, a fish or a snake. And you remember that Jesus said that the Father will not give a snake if the child asks for a fish. But some of the things that we ask for really are snakes. And God knows that they will destroy us. Think of the simple illustration of a loving parent. The little child doesn't know that the third ice cream cone will make him sick. But the loving parent is going to say no to such a request. Not because he hates the child, but because he loves the child, for the very simple reason that he loves the child. Why does a loving parent spank a child? Not because he hates him, but because he wants to deliver that little child from himself, so that he doesn't go through life bearing that intolerable burden. We are given little barbarians, aren't we? to civilize. That's the job of parents under God. And God is in the business of transforming you and me, his wayward and recalcitrant children, into the image of Christ, the image of his son. And that's what our lives are about. We're here to learn to know him, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that is an impossibility without the relinquishment of that self. And when I surrender it to his disposal, there's another word that has been very greatly narrowed down in its meaning. We think of disposal systems and garbage and all of that sort of thing. Disposal simply means to set in place, to dispose, to put. The last part, pose, comes from the Latin word to put to set in place, to set in order, to arrange, to assign to a use. It's only God that can set our wayward wills and our sometimes foolish plans and dreams in order. So I relinquish them to him that he may dispose of them wisely as only God can. Secondly, we need to relinquish our own judgment. And again, that doesn't mean that we scrap it or discard it. We know that our judgment is finite. It's limited. We are nearsighted. 
when we say, I need this or that, which we don't have, we are assuming that this is an absolute necessity now, and, but if we don't have it, then what do we do with that verse that says, my God shall supply all your need? I saw a wonderful article in a magazine some several years ago of a family that had adopted, I've forgotten how many children, I think it was something like 19 children, in addition to their own seven or eight. And of these 19 children, I think 11 were handicapped. The father was a janitor in a school. So you know he was not a man that had a lot of money. The article was entitled, The Family That Needs Nothing. And the reason they gave it that title was they believe that God supplies all their needs. And so if there's something that they think they need that they don't have, they trust God's judgment and not theirs. So in effect, they needed nothing. You may need something tomorrow, and tomorrow you will have it if God wants you to have if God knows that you need it, because we have that promise. But we need to relinquish our own judgment and let God be the judge of what we need. Now there's not one person in this room that can't think of something that you imagine that you need. I think all of us could come up with something. I need this or I need that. I know that I need to learn the lessons that I'm dishing out to you during this weekend. That certainly is a need. And God has his own amazing and mysterious ways of seeing to it that the opportunity is given every hour for me to learn the things that I'm trying to teach other people. It's a very humbling experience. I don't think there's ever a time when I choose a topic to speak on where I don't find myself tested quite severely at that very point. If I'm going to talk about meekness, then every opportunity for anything but meekness is going to present itself to me. And if I'm going to talk about waiting on God, then I'm going to find myself being very impatient about things. So here we are, all of us, in desperate need of transforming power, the transforming power of Jesus Christ. So I relinquish to God my judgment. Do I imagine that mine is wiser than God's? If God has not given me this thing that I think I've got to have, I am, in effect, saying to God, I know better than you do. You're not really paying attention. This is what I got to have. This is what I need. I was speaking with a young mother one time who had just described to me a very, very difficult living situation. They were living with several children in the basement of another missionary's home. These people were missionaries. And she came to me to ask me if I would pray that the Lord would provide another kind of housing for them. She said, we, we need a different living situation. Well, as we talked about it, I said, yes, of course, I would be glad to pray. But I said, you don't need a different kind of housing today. And she looked at me in astonishment, and I said, because if you did, then you would have it, because my God shall supply all your need. God knows how 
much we can take. You know, it says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will never allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to bear, above what you are able. But he will, with the temptation, make a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it, to bear it. Different translations put it that way. And she got the point. Her face just lit up. She said, we don't need another house. We don't need a different place, do we? She said, oh, I'm going to go and call my husband. (laughs) So she did. She went to the phone and she said, honey, we don't need another place to live. And he thought she'd lost her mind, you know. And then she explained to him, she said, when we need it, God will give it to us. We have to leave the judgment up to him. Now, the third thing that we need to, to surrender, to relinquish, is our urge to control other people. Is there anybody here who ever feels the slightest promptings of that urge to control other people. In the book of Micah, there's a very interesting verse. It says, a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. Anybody that can identify with any part of that? This is from the seventh chapter of Micah. But prophet says, as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Savior. I don't know of any more painful experience than to find yourself at odds with a family member. And I would suppose that all of us in some measure have experienced this. You find that there's been some major misunderstanding Perhaps someone has chosen a path of disobedience, and you have, in in an attempt to be a faithful sister or daughter or friend, uh, tried to warn that person. And that person has turned in anger and fury against you, and the whole relationship has disintegrated. My dear friend Arlita Winston told a story of how her own daughter-in-law had turned against her for a period. And that was a great agony because when the baby was born, the grandmother was not permitted to see the baby for quite a while. But that whole situation has been totally transformed through waiting on God. You know, we want to weigh in with all sorts of methods and arguments, and we think, this is the thing I've got to do now. I must confront. Well, there may be a time for confrontation. There may be a time for sitting down and discussing the thing uh, after the relationship has fallen completely apart. But the most important thing, and this is what I'm always trying to emphasize, is to wait first on God. Don't get on the telephone and call up your closest friends, 39 of them, and tell them how awful everything is. Don't immediately book yourself into a counseling center. Um, I'm not knocking counseling centers. I'm simply saying, what is your priority? Who really knows the answer? You know that God does. We need to discipline ourselves, relinquish this urge to solve the problem, 
to straighten people out. And if ever there is a severe temptation in my nature, it is to straighten people out. Well, I can't do it, can I? And all I'm going to do is tangle them up more if I have not learned first to wait on God. Now I happen to be a mother and a mother-in-law and a grandmother, and I have only one child, but she is, of course, very precious to me, and her children are very, very precious to me. And I have all kinds of ideas of what I think that family needs. <laughs> and every time I go there, I'm given the opportunity to learn this lesson of relinquishment. <laughs> Relinquish the urge to say anything about some of the things that I want to say things about. Shut up, in other words. <laughs> Keep your mouth shut. That is a major relinquishment for most of us women. What about you men? Do you ever have that problem? <laughs> no, I didn't think so. Well, you know, we all know what it's like to put our foot in our mouths. And one of the, te one of the tests along this line came when Valerie and her husband came into my bedroom, I was staying with them. I came into the guest room at about 5 o'clock in the morning with their very happy piece of news that number five was on the way. Now, they had two boys and two girls. And in my mind, that was a perfect family. <laughs> and that's all anybody needs. Well, I didn't say it, thank God. I did manage to keep my mouth shut that time. But the urge to control other people. I was so upset about that, not primarily because I thought they ought to stop with four, but because I thought this was a bit too soon after number four had come. But I began to think, what business is it of mine? You know, it is absolutely none of my business. I wanted to tell my son-in-law to sleep in the backyard for a while. <laughs> I mean, it, I really, I can't tell you all the wicked thoughts that went through my mind and all the things that I thought I should, that I could say. And I had to get down on my knees and just relinquish all those urges to God and say, Lord, these are your children. Valerie and Walter are your children, and they're four children, and this tiny one without a name is yours, and Lord, work out your will in their lives, and help me to be a prayer as a grandmother. That is my primary pr responsibility. We grandparents, you know, it's not our job to straighten out our children or our grandchildren. It is our job to be faithful in praying for them and to lift them up into the presence of God daily. The last time I visited my grandchildren, my 15-year-old grandson ha needed a haircut, in my opinion. <laughs> I said nothing, but I prayed that the Lord would do something about it, and lo and behold, his swim coach told him he had to have a haircut. <laughs> you never know what God is going to do in answer to your prayers. <laughs> Lars and I have very different ideas about how to keep um, shall we say, my study and his office. We have 
two little rooms upstairs, and he calls his an office because that's the kind of work that gets done there, and I call mine a study because that's the kind of work that gets done there. And there are times when I just would give anything in the world to go in there and just rearrange everything. I don't like the way Lars arranges things. And I have to confess that I tried that a few times way back early in our marriage. My urge to control others has got to go. And as maybe you've heard Ruth Graham say, you pray about the things, you pray about everything, and you leave the impossible with God. And we cannot change other people, let's face it. We cannot control other people, and the attempt to control other people is invariably damaging. I would like to straighten out the mess in the church where I belong. There's not a thing I can do about that other than pray, but I do need to pray. I would like to get rid of the Nintendo that somebody gave to my grandchildren. My daughter nearly died when they got this for Christmas because it was the last thing she ever wanted in the house. And if somebody in the church comes along and gives you your children the, a game like Nintendo to the children, then what do you do in order not to offend those people? Is this my business? That's the question. Is it my business? No, it is God's business. Leave it to him. God says, I'll take care of it. Keep your mouth shut. Remember that God's timing is always right. I must wait on God's timing. And being silent and backing off and shutting up are disciplines. They are disciplines for every one of us. They are forms of chastening. And the Bible tells us that our Heavenly Father chastens us in order that we may share his holiness. We need to be chastened in order to share his holiness. I think we women, ever since the Garden of Eden, are manipulators. We have very subtle ways of doing things. Did I hear a man say, amen? <laughs> well, Eve was a manipulator, wasn't she? She had her own agenda, and she set about moving in the direction of fulfilling what she thought needed to be fulfilled, and what happened to Adam? He just wimped out. <laughs> he said, this is what the little lady wants, and this is what we'll do. So we, we are manipulators. We women and you men have abdicated responsibility of what masculinity is all about. Well, we won't spend any more time on that one, but just uh, <laughs> a word. I trust it's a word in season. And for both those faults, we need the Lord's chastening. And we need to relinquish our desire to be laid back if we happen to be a man and, and God has assigned to you the position of headship. I don't meet many, very many men who really want to be the head of the house in the sense that the Bible requires the spiritual head, the one who is to husband and protect and provide for and be responsible for everything that happens in that house, the place, the, the one at whose desk the buck stops. Not too many men jump at that opportunity. They would much rather turn over and go to sleep, turn on the TV, be away for the weekend instead of have, having to face up to responsibilities that always require sacrifice. And the responsibilities of both husbands and wives 
require sacrifice. Relinquishing our time, relinquishing our ideas, relinquishing our urge to control other people. So we need the Lord's chastening. Yes, we do. We need it. And the contexts in which we are to learn these lessons are chosen by God. Never imagine that you would be a saint if you were put in different circumstances. Your own condition, your job, your home, your family, your relationships, your church, your difficulties, your limitations, your handicaps, every one of them is exactly designed by the one who made us for our learning sainthood, our learning holiness and being conformed into the image of his son. Now, did I make this up? No, I got it out of Romans 8, 28 and 29, which says everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. Everything to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So often we skip the purpose, which is defined in Romans 8, 29. And the purpose is that we should be conformed to the image of his son. That we may be like him. Is there any higher ambition that any of us could have? The Apostle Paul said, how changed are my ambitions. Now all I care for is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We cannot have the power of his resurrection without the fellowship of his sufferings. I've written a book called A Path Through Suffering. And I've given there a very simple definition, which is not original with me. I think it goes way back to somebody like Buddha, but I'm not sure. And you can go out of here and say, Elizabeth Elliot, she spoke at the Cove and she quoted Buddha. <laughs> well, yes, I do. I quote, quote all sorts of people that I wouldn't endorse their doctrines necessarily, but I think that I think it was he that said that suffering is wanting what you don't have or having what you don't want. Now, if I'm going to learn to wait on God, I must relinquish my wants and my don't wants. When I say suffering is having what you don't want and wanting what you don't have, that would include, of course, many trivial things which we would never dignify with the term suffering. But trouble, um, adversity, affliction, anything that tries my mortal soul, anything that cuts across my ideas, my tastes, my preferences, my frames, would fit this definition, wouldn't it? Those are the kindergarten lessons. If we don't learn to relinquish our wants and our don't wants in the tiniest little thing, well, I didn't want to eat in this restaurant, and do you people know any more severe test of a marriage than a car trip where you have to decide where you're going to stop for lunch or whether you're going to stop for lunch. And if you have a husband like mine, he doesn't see any point in stopping for lunch. And I, I'm hungry practically all the time anyway, but twice as hungry whenever we're on the road. So 
it'll get to be 12 o'clock and he's not looking for a place to eat and I can tell that and 12.30 comes and we eat lunch at 12 o'clock at home so I'm very hungry. And one o'clock comes and finally I'm likely to say something, were you planning to maybe have a bite to eat? And he says, oh, did you want lunch? <laughs> you know, he never says that when we're at home. I mean, sometime I just feel like not fixing lunch, and then when he comes down at his usual time at 12 o'clock and just say to him, did you want lunch? <laughs> These tiny little things are the kindergarten lessons, and it is as I learn to respond and relinquish my wants and my don't wants. I didn't want this, but this is what I got, so everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. Wait on the Lord. Let the Lord take care of all of these little things that aren't working the way you expected them to. The contexts in which we learn are chosen by God. This pattern for good is designed so that we may be conformed to the image of his son. Everything that happens. And there is no other context for me. There is no other place in the universe where I can best learn these lessons, but exactly where God has put me. Exactly the people with whom I have to live and work. Exactly the circumstances, financial, uh, physical, mental, spiritual, all of these things, God designs for our best. He may change them tomorrow, but that's his business and not mine. It is these particular needs desires, perplexities, and calamities. Why does God have you where you are? Because this is the perfect setting in which he wants to reveal himself to you. It's the perfect setting in which you can learn to wait on him. Now there's a chapter in the Bible, which is one of my very favorite chapters, and I'm sure it's one of yours too, many of you, which so beautifully points up all of these three things that I've mentioned, and if you've lost track, number one was self, number two is judgment, number three, the urge to control others. In the chapter of Second Chronicles 20, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Munites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Ed En Gedi. This was a very bad piece of news. Now notice the response, a very natural human response, alarmed. And in this one small verse, we have a picture of what kind of a man Jehoshaphat was. He was human. He was alarmed. If we get bad news, it's alarming. He made a resolve immediately, a decision. He resolved to inquire of the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. So when he Made a, when he was alarmed, his immediate response was not to sink into a pile of self-pity 
and give way to terrors and fears. He made a resolve to inquire of the Lord, to wait on God. And one way of doing that is fasting. Have you tried that? Fasting is, has always been a discipline from Old Testament times. Jesus took it for granted that people would fast as he took it for granted that people prayed. He spoke about when you fast and when you pray. It's taken for granted. So when there's some seemingly major issue, something that alarms you, why not try skipping a meal? It's a good way to bring our bodies under subjection. Paul said, I buffet my body and bring it under subjection, lest, having preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So he proclaims a fast, and the people of Judah obeyed. They came together to seek help from the Lord. And I love the whole sequence of what happens here in this chapter. Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard, and he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? Last night we talked about, first of all, we talked about who it is whom, in whom our trust lies. And Jehoshaphat has this perfectly clear. You are the God who is in heaven. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. I was praying along these lines before the election. Power and might are in your hands. Lord, you can put the right man in the right office at the right time. And some of us had very different ideas about who the right man was. But God has his purposes to work out, and it is for us to wait and to constantly focus our eyes on the one who is in charge. Oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? He's reminding God of what he did. They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name. It sounds to me as though Jehoshaphat's whole life was one of waiting on God. Every second, every minute, every hour, we will stand. If plague and famine and sword come, those are huge disasters, aren't they? Those are calamities that make us helpless. What do we do? Start asking why? Sink into a swamp of self-pity? We will stand in your presence before the temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear and save us. God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing has changed in the nature of God. And then Jehoshaphat points to the present situation. And that's the thing to do, you know, just lift it into the presence of God. I've been reading a marvelous book called Transformation in Christ. And the theme of that book is bringing everything into 
and he uses a Latin phrase, and I don't think it's really totally translatable into English, in conspectu dei, which means in the view of God. Just try to look at everything in God's view. Bring it into the light of his presence. And that is exactly what Jehoshaphat is doing here. He brings this situation. Now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. He reminds God of his command and of Israel's obedience. And look at the calamity that has been the result of that obedience. It's amazing when you read through the Bible and see the terrible things that have happened as a result of somebody's obedience to God. Have you ever thought about those? I've been making a list of those for a long time. Well, for one example only, uh, when Jesus was born, this clearly was the will of God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And what happened as a result of that divinely ordained event? Think of all those babies that were killed, murdered. Well, there are thousands of examples in scripture and in our own experience where we did the thing that God told us to do and something awful happened and so immediately our reaction is, oh, I must have made a terrible mistake. Or worse, Lord, after I was so obedient to you, why would you allow a thing like this to happen to poor little me? Wasn't I good enough? Totally mistaken notion. So Jehoshaphat reminds God of their obedience. See, he says in verse 12, verse 11, see how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? Relinquish our judgment and ask God. To us, this looks utterly incomprehensible, disastrous, calamitous. But Lord, will you judge them? You do what needs to be done. This is looking at it in the view of God. And then he reminds God of their helplessness. We have no power to face this army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. How often we pray that, don't we? Lord, we, we have no idea what to do. So when we don't know what to do, we do one thing. Eyes on him. Lift yourself out of this terrible thing, this awful set of circumstances, and put your eyes on him. Someone has said, Look around you and be dismayed. Look inward and be discouraged. Look upward and be filled with joy, something like that. It's a little better than that, but that's the idea. Put your eyes on him. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now, don't you love this, verse 13? All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Amy Carmichael was about 18, I think, when her father died. She was the oldest of seven children. 
Amy Carmichael, the Irish missionary to India, whose books have had such a tremendous influence in my own. And when her father died, her mother was, of course, a helpless widow. She certainly had no skills for going out and earning a living. What did she do? She gathered all the children into the dining room, and they all knelt down and prayed. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood before the Lord. That's what waiting on God means. Then God responds, doesn't he? Always. He always hears. And he always responds. Not always the way we'd like. But here it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of... Martaniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, and he, as he stood in the assembly and he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Some of us are real fighters. You know, We'd like to fight all the battles, and some of them are ours to fight but not all of them. The battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Now see, even though God is going to fight the battle, there's something for them to do, and there's always something for us to do. There is always something. When I received the final word that my husband, Jim Elliott, was dead, my first thought was, what am I going to do? Here's a mission station with only one missionary left. Here's a baby 10 months old with no father. What am I supposed to do? You know, there's always one thing to do. There's always something. God will give you something to do. Obviously, the first thing to do is to look at it in the view of God. He was not taken by surprise. To me, that's one of the most comforting thoughts in the world. No matter what happens, I can realize God wasn't taken by surprise. He knew all along this was going to happen, and he was preparing us. He's always preparing us in ways that very seldom are apparent to us until later. We can look back over the long view and we see that step by step by step God was preparing us. How in the world can God prepare a woman for the death of her husband? I met a lady on Wednesday who said that she had just been widowed, I think she said two months ago. And I said, how? And she said, my husband was found dead in the field. They did an autopsy. They never found anything, any reason at all for his death. Just an utter shock and inexplicable. But God is there. God is not taken by surprise. God has a plan where we are desperate. Do not be afraid. Take up your positions. This is what you are to do. You will not have to fight this battle, but you do have to take up your positions and stand firm 
and see the deliverance of the Lord. See the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. How often we waste time and energy in worrying about how we're ever going to face something tomorrow. Jesus has forbidden that. Take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow will take thought for the things of itself. In other words, God himself has already taken thought for tomorrow. God is already there. Did you ever think about that? He is eternal. The past is not mine. It's gone. It belongs to God. The future is not mine. It's not here yet. All I have is this moment. But God is in my past. God is in my future. And he is here right now. So this is the one thing that you are to do. Just take up your position. Stand firm. That's what you're to do tomorrow morning. But right now, do not. Something you are to do not. Be discouraged, afraid. But go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. And he is always faithful. He is always faithful. What was Jehoshaphat's response to the prophet's word? He bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korathites, Korahites stood up and praised the Lord. And in verse 22, it says, As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab. There is a mysterious principle in Scripture that when praise begins, when song begins, God goes into operation in a way that we can never imagine. There's a verse also in Chronicles that says, when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also. And I've experienced that myself, realizing that once I have put the thing on the altar, whatever it is, as painful as that relinquishment might be, then this utterly unimaginable joy floods in, and the song of the Lord begins. Joy comes out of sorrow. Gain comes out of loss. This is what we bring to the cross. We bring him our sins, and what does he give us? His righteousness. We bring him our sorrows, and he gives us his joy. And in the most excruciating relinquishment of the thing which is dearest to us, there comes that amazing song of the Lord. I can imagine that a poor Israelite, let's say, who wanted to bring a lamb, and that was not required of a poor man, but he wanted to give God his best. Suppose he brings that little pet lamb who has lain in his bosom like a baby, and he brings that and makes the sacrifice. Later that afternoon, he couldn't come back and say, well, you know, I don't really feel good about that. I, I really don't think I was very sincere. Um, it didn't really work. Well, the lamb has been slain, and there's nothing left but ashes. Think of Abraham. 
God required of him the most precious thing in his life. And he was to slit his son's throat and put him on that altar. Abraham passed the test. How would you like to have the story of Abraham without the story of the sacrifice of his son? But you remember that God did not require that final sacrifice. He provided a substitute. He provided the, the ram. Imagine the joy, the unspeakable joy, the inexpressible joy that Abraham would have then experienced having made the final relinquishment. He had obeyed God. He had done the thing which was impossible for a father to do. And he had done it by God's grace, and he had put it there, and God came up with the unimagined solution. As they began to sing in praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab. And I recommend to you who are in some desperate situation, remember you only have one thing at a time to do. Start by waiting on God to find out what that thing is. Maybe all he's asking you to do next is wash the dishes. Some tiny, ordinary thing that doesn't seem to have anything at all to do with the will of God. When you make that act of obedience, the next step will be clear. I've found this again and again and again in my life. Just take a very simple little thing like losing something. When I lose things, I get all upset because I pride myself on being so organized and I know exactly where everything is. But I lose things regularly. Ask Lars. And I can call a halt on all the work that I was going to do that morning until I find that gold cross pen. And I turn everything upside down, and I go through the drawers, and I empty the wastebaskets, and I go into Lars, and I accuse him of having walked off with my pen, which he does occasionally do. And you know, there have been time after time after time when the Lord says to me, forget about that pen. You do what you know you're supposed to do this morning. Sit yourself down at that desk and turn on that computer and do whatever it is you were going to do. And I do that, and guess what? When the job is done, I find the pen. Little things. It's always something that is doable that God gives us to do. And then he will do what is not doable. Are you willing to give up yourself, to relinquish your ideas? Are you willing to relinquish your judgment? Are you willing to relinquish your urge to control other people and to be joyful and prayerful and thankful? And if you'd like a scripture reference for those three words, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, and 18. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And we'll keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>